This is God's word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is, a cho- is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for all that you give us, for your open-handed generosity to us. And one of the things you give us that we are so grateful for is your word. You speak and When we open up the scriptures, you're speaking to us. And so I pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Hebrews is meant to fuel a faithful, obedient life of enduring to the end. It's meant to be like adding fuel to fire. It's meant to fuel us in a life of faithful, obedient endurance all the way to the end. If you remember, one of the central verses in Hebrews is Hebrews 12, where it says, let us run the race with endurance that's set before us, looking to Christ. And so that's, that's the aim. It's not quick bursts of energy and then we languish and then another quick burst, burst of energy. It's not looking for the next spiritual high, but it's a life of faithful enduring, obedient faith to Jesus that this book is meant to fuel. And it does this by doing two things. It, it, it elevates Jesus high so that we see him and we know that our salvation is totally secure in him. Our salvation is completely, he has secured for us Hebrews chapter 7 says, an eternal redemption. Or our text here this morning says that he, has, he is the source of eternal salvation. So he has secured this for us. 
we are meant to have deep security in Jesus as our perfect, sufficient Savior. But the other thing that Hebrews does is it also elevates the seriousness of faith and obedience to Christ, of trusting him. That's why it says, I mean, over and over again, things like hold fast your confession, right? Strive to enter God's rest through faith in Christ. These are not lazy boy statements, right? We don't, we don't do this as we're kind of relaxing, sitting back in our lazy boy. No, these are meant to teach us the seriousness. In fact, earlier in, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 2, it says, since we have such a great salvation, how dare we neglect it if we do neglect it? We should, we should be very careful not to neglect this great salvation, not to drift from this perfect Savior. We see these two things juxtaposed over and over again through the book of Hebrews. And so the grandest statements of the person and work of Christ are meant to give us deep security in Christ. In other words, salvation is a divine accomplishment, something that the triune God accomplishes for undeserving people like you and I. It's not a human achievement. It's not something we achieve or something we attain to. And so security in Christ. But security can work in two ways. Security can lead to complacency or to courage. It can lead to self-indulgence or self-sacrifice. It can lead to inaction, or an adventurous spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, security can lead to being complacent or being courageous. Let me explain. A young boy who musters up the courage to walk up that tall ladder to the high dive at the swimming pool, right, and stands at the edge and wants to jump off, he is given courage to do that because he sees his dad down in the pool, at the bottom, in the pool, waiting for him. And he is secure in the fact that his dad loves him and his dad is strong. And so he jumps in, adventurous, courageous. Picture another boy who's been coddled since the cradle, right? And at eight years old, his mom doesn't let him walk across the street yet. And and this boy learns that comfort and security means staying inside where it's comfortable, where it's secure, and where nothing even remotely dangerous could happen. One is security in full bloom that leads to courage. One is security that's ingrown and perverted. It's the young boy who's secure in his dad's love and strength so that he takes the risky plunge off the high dive. This is what the book of Hebrews is aiming to do the security of, of, of the finished work of Christ really being branded on our souls so that we live lives of courage and faith and obedience to Jesus. Christ has accomplished a, a full and perfect salvation, and so, so let's trust him. Let's take the plunge and go with him all the way in wholehearted faith and obedience. And so the big idea from Hebrews 5, 1 to 10 is this. Salvation in Jesus is perfect and eternal. And 
It's for those who obey him. Salvation in Christ is perfect and eternal. And it's for those who obey him. And I'm taking those words right out of this passage. I'm not coming up with that on my, on my own. We're enter, entering into one of the big themes in the book of Hebrews, and that's the work of Jesus as our high priest. And so we're going to dig deep into what it means that Jesus is our high priest from chapters 5 through chapters 9. I remember years ago... Um, John, I heard John Piper give this analogy. He says, raking will give you leaves, but digging will give you diamonds. And we don't want to be content just raking leaves, right? Get this nice big pile of leaves that's fun to jump in, but then you burn someday. It's, you know, are they, you know, pointless? We want to dig so that we can find diamonds and be nourished and find the full riches that belong to us in Christ. So today we're going to look at Three qualifications Jesus had to meet in order to be our great and perfect high priest, in order to earn for us, in order to accomplish for us this perfect and eternal salvation. And then we're going to see how this connects with those for whom it is secured, namely those who obey him. So three qualifications Jesus had to meet in order to be our great and perfect high priest. Number one, he had to be appointed. Number two, he had to be sympathetic toward people. And number three, he had to be sacrificial for people. So appointed, sympathetic, and sacrificial. Let's jump in. First, Jesus had to be appointed. Verses four to six. Jesus had to be made, was made a high priest by the appointment of God the Father. Verses four to six say this. No one takes this honor, honor of being a high priest, for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, a high priest, if he is to be faithful, must represent God, must be appointed by God. And like Aaron, the first of the Levitical priests under the Old Covenant, Jesus was appointed. And it's the Father who appointed him. Again, verse 5 says, So Jesus did not exalt himself, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son. This is a quotation from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which is a messianic psalm. And there's, a, there's another place, or there's a place in the New Testament where we hear the Father saying these same words to the Son. Do you remember where that's at? In his baptism. Remember when, the, when Jesus comes up out of the water and a dove descends upon Christ and a voice is heard from heaven saying, This is is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The author of Hebrews is drawing this out, that the father is very pleased with the work of his son as high priest. When he sent Christ on a mission, he's very pleased. He said, you are my son. You are my son. The father expresses his delight in the son as Jesus was carrying out the mission, the mission which included the work 
of a high priest or doing the work of a high priest. The father appoints a son. Along with recognizing him as his son, the father also says in verse 6, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the father appoints Jesus as a priest. He not only recognizes him as his son, but he also appoints him as a priest or a mediator between God and men. And Jesus is the perfect mediator between God and men. Under the old covenant, there, was a pre- there were priests who would do daily activities and rituals. And then there was a high priest who was appointed to go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and atone for the sins of the people and for his own sins, of, of course. And all of this points forward to Christ, who is the high priest and all high priests, who is the true high priest. Last week, we, ta- we talked about how through Jesus, and because he is a perfect high priest, we are to draw near to the throne of grace. And I just want to say right now, there is no drawing near to God other than through Jesus and his high priestly work. This is massively important. This is not something just, you know, like to loosely hold in our mind. This is central. If we are to draw near to God at all, let alone with boldness and confidence, we are to do it with our minds and hearts fixed on Jesus and who he is and what he has done. Jesus is called a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, who the heck is Melchizedek? Melchizedek, right? Who is he? What's this all about? Well, we're going to talk more about Melchizedek in chapter 7. Aren't you excited? Um, But quickly, since it comes up here, I just want to mention a couple of things. Because Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. There is the Aaronic order or the Levitical order, and there is the Melchizedekian order. And Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a somewhat mysterious figure who shows up in Genesis 14. And other than that, he doesn't show up anywhere in the Bible except he's referenced in Psalm 110 and he's referenced in the book of Hebrews. Let me just draw three things quickly and then just tie them together that that shows us that Jesus is a perfect high priest in the order of Melchizedek. First, the line of priests, like I said, in the Old Covenant came through Aaron. Well, Aaron doesn't come on the scene until Exodus. Melchizedek is called a priest of God Most High back in Genesis 14. And so the, the, the priesthood of Melchizedek is a priesthood that, that precedes and supersedes the priesthood of Aaron. So Jesus is part of a priesthood that, is, that is supersedes Aaron's priesthood. Second, Genesis 14 describes Melchizedek as a king who was also a priest. Right? He, was, he was King Melchizedek, who was also priest of God Most High. And of course, Jesus is a king and priest as well, isn't he? He is not just a, pre, or just a high priest. He is, he is a, the king above all kings, the Lord above all lords, who is also our, our high priest. And the third thing I want you to notice is that the Father appoints Jesus a priest forever. He's not a priest for a little while. He's not a priest just for this age. He is a priest for unending ages. 
world without end. Jesus is a priest forever. He is a perennial priest. His priesthood has no end. And this is incredibly important when we consider the next two qualifications. So Jesus, the first qualification, he had to be appointed, and he was appointed a priest in the order of Melchizedek by the Father. The second qualification Jesus needed to meet was that he needed to be sympathetic toward the people he represented. A priest must be sympathetic toward people. It's not just about doing, in the Old Covenant, it wasn't just about doing their rituals before God. But verse 2 says that under the Old Covenant, they were able to deal gently toward the people because they themselves were beset with weakness. A priest must be sympathetic. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 makes an amazing statement when it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This word sympathize is so precious. I mean, this is meant to deeply encourage not only the first hearers who would have heard this, the, the Hebrews, right, these Jewish Christians, this is meant to be such a deep encouragement to Christians. Thomas Goodwin, who's an old Puritan, he writes, he has such great insight on this passage, Hebrews chapter 4 and 5. And he says, the Bible, it's like what the Bible's doing here is it's taking our hand and putting us up to the beating heart of Christ, where we can feel his massive, that's not a word he used, that's a word I'm using, we can feel his massive, tender love toward us. Notice here, this is last week's text, but I just want to park here for a second. Notice the double negative used for emphasis. We do not have a high priest who is unable. Another way to put this would be to say, we most certainly do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. And I love how it's, 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 he, he sympathizes. It's not just that he has sympathy, this, this stagnant, static emotion, but it's a verb, it's active. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. The word to sympathize means to be affected with the same feeling as another. Jesus, our high priest, is sympathetic presently. He is sympathetic now. It's not even just that when he walked the earth, he had sympathy or was sympathetic. He is at the right hand of God the Father on the throne. He's sympathetic toward his people. He's affected by what affects us. And our text here today points out two ways his sympathy is shown to us. First, in our suffering, in our pressure, and in our sorrow. We see that in verses 7 to 8. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
I love that phrase, in the days of his flesh. The eternal son of God stooped down and became fully human. Not just partially, not 50% human, 50% divine, but fully God and yet also fully human in every single way. Jesus had to stoop down in order to scoop us up and bring us near to the Father's heart. And that's what he's done. If you could feel the sympathetic heart of Christ for you today, it would be such sweet medicine for your soul. And, and often, in our self-sufficiency, we don't want to admit our weaknesses and our sorrows. We don't, I mean, we might admit them in some general sense, but, but we don't want to come broken and weak to our high priest. And yet, when we don't do that, we miss out on the deepest comfort that he could possibly give us now. A sympathetic high priest. Jesus has real sympathy because he really suffered. Jesus really knew sorrow. Isaiah 53 describes the suffering servant as a man of sorrows. He was a man full of sorrow. He was a man that had lots of sorrows. But these two verses, verses 7 and 8, are specifically referring to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion. Do you remember that? Do you remember the scene? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his crucifixion. He knows what's coming. He knows exactly what's coming his way. He experienced an agony and a sorrow that's unparalleled in all of human history. If you think you have known sorrow that no one else knows, just know this, Christ has, and he can trumpet. And so he's sympathetic towards you. You can come to him. Here's what, here's a scene here in Luke chapter 22, verse 39. This is Jesus crying out with loud cries and tears to the Father. It says this, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a a stone's throw away and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is the agony, the sorrow, the suffering of the eternal Son of God. He knows our sorrow. He knows our, our deepest pain. He's sympathetic toward us in it. 
Oh, how often we run to other things or people to medicate our souls when if we would come to Christ, our sympathetic high priest, we would find him well able to care for us. Not snapping the finger and just taking everything away, but well able to care for our souls. He is able. And I love how, I mean, think about in the days of his flesh, I mean, Jesus came down, became fully man, as I said before, but when he was raised from the dead, he was raised bodily, meaning he's still in a body, sitting at the Father's right hand. He is sympathetic toward us. We, as part of his body, part of his body, he cares. He has sympathy for an aching finger and a stubbed toe and a broken arm and a deaf ear that's part of his body. He's able to sympathize with us. As his bride, what good husband, what loving husband doesn't feel the ache of his wife, the pain of his wife? We are the bride of Christ. He is touched with what touches us even right now. But Christ's sympathy is not only shown to us in our sorrow and our suffering and our trouble and our difficulty, but also even in our sin. Verse 2 says that every human high priest can deal gently with the ignorance and wayward. How much more our perfect high priest? How much more can he be gentle with the ignorant and wayward. I actually think, I actually think it's, e- it's easier for us to believe Jesus is sympathetic in our suffering than that he actually ha- is sympathetic when we sin. We think, you know, gosh, I got to figure this, I got to repent for this, and then, and then maybe I can come to him. But it's, it's like he, 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 he cares for us. Even when we are caught in sin, he cares for his people. Now, Jesus doesn't have any imperfections, right? Jesus is, is totally perfect. Human high priests under the old covenant, they had to be gentle because they themselves knew what it was like to be weak and sinful. Jesus doesn't have any sin. He never has sinned. He's Perfect, pure, spotless. But Hebrews 4 again says, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize in our weakness. Weakness meaning suffering and sin. Because he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Thomas Goodwin, again this Puritan, I mentioned earlier, he was a pastor in England in the 1600s. He has this fantastic book called The Heart of Christ, and he says this, your very, now listen to all of this, okay? Your very sins move Jesus to pity more than to anger. Yes, his pity is increased the more towards you. Even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease, his hatred shall, fall, shall all fall, and that only upon the sin 
to free you from it by its ruin and destruction. But his bowels, back in the old days, you know, they said bowels was the seat of mercy and compassion. His bowels shall be the more drawn out to you. And this as much when you lie under sin as under any other affliction. Therefore, fear not. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Do you find yourself today caught in a pattern of sin? Yeah, you you love Jesus, but you find yourself caught in a pattern of sin. Christ, his heart is going out to you now. And he wants to destroy that sin because of its destruction of you. But come to him. He is sympathetic towards you. He has massive sympathy toward you. Verse 2, where it says that, that a priest is gentle toward the ignorant and wayward. The word wayward means to go astray. It means to get off the right path. It means to wander. It means to wander. The King James Version translates it to be out of the way. To be out of the way. Here's the way. Walk in it, God says, and to be out of the way. Do you ever find yourself out of the way? Wayward. One, am I the only one here? Wandering at times. Behaving in a way that you don't want to behave. Ever find yourself there? Christ, our high priest, comes to us with deep sympathy to free us from that. The last thing we need to do is run somewhere. Like, where do we go for forgiveness and grace? It's to our high priest. And we know that he is sympathetic toward us. Jesus hates sin. We were singing the song earlier, Come Thou Fount. I love that last verse Luke started doing the last few times we've sung it. On that day when free from sinning. When, you, when we sang that this morning, did anyone else say, I can't wait for that day? There's actually, there's going to be a time I will never sin again. On that day, Jesus hates sin. Right? He came and suffered and died to forgive us, to, to rescue us from the consequences of sin and progressively from the power of sin and one day from the very presence of sin. He hates sin, but he loves his people those for whom he died, and he's sympathetic toward us in our continuing struggle against it. Too often we justify our sin or pretend it's not a big deal, not realizing that the medicine we need is in the hands of the great physician who is ready to administer to us this very moment. He is gentle and full of compassion. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly smoldering wick he won't snuff out. Jesus satisfies the qualification 
of being sympathetic supremely. Number three, Jesus needed to be qualified. Excuse me, to be qualified, he needed to pass the qualification of being sacrificial. A high priest must sacrifice for people. The high priest must atone for sins and turn away God's wrath. Jesus has done this perfectly, and he's done it once for all. Verse 9 says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Through what he suffered, Jesus was made perfect, which of course does not mean that he was somehow morally unqualified or deficient before he suffered and died on the cross. Rather, it means that through suffering and death of Jesus on the cross, he was made the perfect and sufficient Savior, putting away sin forever and turning aside the wrath of God forever for every one of his people. He's able to save perfectly those who draw near to God through him. Only through him. There's no secret way. There's no other way. It's only through Christ. He's able to save them perfectly. The word translated made perfect is a word teleo. It's where we get, maybe you've heard of this word telos. Telos means like the end or purpose of something. And what this is saying is that Jesus accomplished God's ultimate aim, God's ultimate purpose, namely redemption, full redemption for his people. And he did this by offering up himself once for all to put away sin forever. Jesus is not being sacrificed over and over again. The priests under the old covenant and the high priest every year sacrifices, rituals daily and once a year, over and over and over again. It could never put away sin. Sin was never ultimately dealt with. Jesus offered up himself once for all and has put away sin forever. This is that secure thing I talked about earlier. Like, if our sins are forgiven if they really are, if they really and truly are forgiven, if there really is no condemnation now, then there won't be any condemnation next week or next year or on the day of judgment or 10,000 years into eternity. Notice how it also says, when it says made perfect, this is a past tense thing. This is, we look to Christ and the cross. This is why he is the source of eternal salvation. He is the effectual cause, the, the primary cause of eternal salvation. Jesus Christ, in the perfection of his work as high priest, is the supreme cause of eternal salvation. Did I say primary earlier? I meant supreme. It's not primary. Like the supreme cause. One of the sayings that came out of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s is that Christians, we, believers in Jesus Christ, we are saved by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone. In Christ alone. We are saved by Christ alone, and we don't add anything to Christ. He is the source of eternal salvation. And once saved, we receive an eternal salvation. We are saved eternally. Nothing can undo it. It's not as though we are saved today, but tomorrow, if truly saved, of course, not just a profession of faith, but once we're truly saved, we're not saved today, and then we're cut off tomorrow. I do believe that once you are saved, you are truly and eternally saved. And no one will snatch you out of the hands of Christ. Which is why the last part of verse 9 has caused no small amount of trouble. The end of verse 9, I think, is a correction I'm not saying this was in the mind of the writer of Hebrews, but it's a correction, perhaps in our day, of a message of cheap grace, of giving a tip of the hat to Jesus, of praying the sinner's prayer, and then just going down the road, living however you want. You and I are not being called to some kind of easy believism. Here's what verse 9 says in, in its entirety. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. To all who obey him. To the obedient. We might be tempted to read this as though it says, Jesus is the, etern- is the source of eternal salvation to all who believe him. That sounds a little bit better, doesn't it? Like, whew, I believe. But that's not what it says. This eternal salvation is said to be for those who obey Christ. The perfection of the work of Jesus Christ as our high priest Listen, it's for more than just good lyrics for worship songs. It is for that. I think the best songs we sing are the songs that highlight Christ and his work. I mean, so it is for that, but it's for more than that. It's for more than just comforting vibes and feelings in our hearts. It's for more than just elevated thoughts about God and Christ in our brains and our minds. certainly does all of these things, and it should do all of these things. But if that's all it does, you may have wonderful notions about Jesus and still have no saving knowledge of him. Flowery, beautiful thoughts about Christ, but no seed of salvation in your heart. No saving knowledge of Jesus. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said in commenting on this verse. He says, faith and obedience are bound up in the same bundle. He he that obeys God trusts God. And he that trusts God obeys God. 
The moment you put yourself into his hands, you must obey him or you have not trusted him. Does that make sense? Once you put yourself in his hands through, through faith in Christ, we're called to a life of obedience in trusting Jesus. And if there's no obedience, then you have not truly trusted him. Now, this is not work salvation. This is not obedience as the cause of salvation. I mean, if Jesus is the supreme cause of eternal salvation, our obedience cannot be. But obedience is necessary as evidence of true salvation. As evidence that we are truly saved. Or as the fruit of saving faith. If saving faith is the root which grows up into a tree, if that tree is living, there will be the fruit of obedience. Not perfect, I mean, by any means, but a direction in our lives of obedience to Christ. <clears throat> so genuine faith will have accompanying Real obedience. Listen to what Hebrews 11.8 says. This is the chapter of faith, right? And over and over again, it says, by faith, so-and-so did something. But here's what it says about Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed. When God called him out to go to a place he didn't know, he did it. By faith, Abraham obeyed. 1 John 2, 3 says this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. We know that we have really come to know Jesus if we keep his commandments. And, and just contrast that, like prior to coming to Jesus, we just, all we did, we didn't care about him. We didn't care about his commandments. We just did what we wanted. The next passion or desire in our heart that sent us this way, we went that way. And then sent us this way, we went that way. But when we come to Christ, of course, there's a struggle inside, but there is a new direction in our lives. We want to obey Christ. And not every whim of our heart, every fleshly desire for this or that or the other thing. This is how we know that we've come to know him if we obey his commandments. Jesus asks a question that all of us should think carefully about in Luke 6.46. And just, just let, let this land on you, okay? Maybe someone here really needs to hear this. Maybe more than one person. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? That's a good question. Well, think about what the Lord has told us to do so far in the book of Hebrews. All of these spoken to professing Christians, right? The book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians. Listen to the seriousness of these words. This is what we just heard in the book of Hebrews so far. Today... If you hear his voice, 
don't harden your heart. That's an imperative. That is a command. Respond. And it's spoken three times in chapters 3 and 4, just so we don't miss the point. Here's something else we're commanded to do. Hold fast your confidence and hope in Christ. Don't, don't treat salvation like, like a note card you got somewhere in your purse or somewhere in your glove box that tells you you're saved because... No, hold fast your confidence and your hope in Jesus Christ. Here's something else we're told to do. Be careful, be diligent, watch your heart so that you are not deceived by sin and fall away from God. Watch your heart. Sin is deceitful. Be careful. Here's something else we're commanded. Be diligent to hear and respond to God's word. And then last week's passage, we are commanded, draw near to the throne of grace. These are all imperatives. And of course, I could say, because we have such a great high priest, do these things. If what Hebrews says about Jesus is true, then you and I must reorient our lives around him and not get him to tag along with us and, and carry out our vision for life. And we reorient our lives around him. He is ultimate reality. And to not do this, to treat him lightly, will lead to neglecting, will lead to drifting, and is to commit spiritual suicide. So do you trust Jesus Christ alone as the source of eternal salvation? Amen. If you say, yes, I do, amen. Here's the next question. Is your life characterized by obedience to Christ? Not perfect obedience, as I said before, but sincere and honesty in your desire to please the Lord in all you do. True faith is obedient faith. Jesus Christ, our perfect high priest, is the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Let's pray.